0: Welcome to episode 1682 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Limberg of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: Doing okay. You know, I was just thinking, I have not thought about Bryce Harper for a while. Have you thought about Bryce Harper for a while? He just like has not really made himself at the top of my mind in a way that he was for years and years. It's like, I haven't really talked about Bryce Harper. I haven't written about Bryce Harper. I haven't read a whole lot about Bryce Harper. It's just like he went from omnipresent. Maybe this is just my skewed perspective. Like Obviously, if you're a Phillies fan, you've thought about Bryce Harper, but In terms of like the national conversation, Bryce Harper has sort of receded from it after dominating it, maybe in ways that were even disproportionate for years.
0: My main memory, recent memory of Harper, is that there was a lot of consternation because he sort of got off to a a somewhat slow start, I think, in his early Phillies days. But Mm -hmm. he ended up having almost like a five-win season his first year in Philadelphia. And so I think that my... My most recent check-in on Harper was somewhere during that 2019 season to be like, oh, this is, he's, it's fine. He's, yeah, he's still good. Right. He's still good.
1: <laughs> yeah. but I don't think there's been a Fangraphs article on him since he signed with the Phillies. I could be wrong, but just quickly looking before we started recording, I don't think there's been one. And I'm not saying that there should have been one. It's just like, yeah, he's, he's fine. He's still good, but like not in a way that really calls attention to himself, which is, Odd, Just because Bryce Harper was one of the contenders for unofficial face of baseball status for years. And like, not only was he great and a phenom and on the Sports Illustrated cover when he was 16 and all of that and The Natural and just a ton of attention. And then early in his career, he was up and down a bit, but like he was, you know, great at age 19. And then he had the MVP season in 2015 when he was unbelievable. And since then, he's just been, like, good. He's just been good. (laughs) And I don't really mean that as a a criticism. Like, I guess it is in the sense that he has not repeated that MVP campaign. But it's just odd for Bryce Harper to be in the position of just, like, kind of blending into the background. Like, he's just another good player now. Whereas for so long, he was, like, the center of attention because it was, like, all of the prospect hype for Harper And then the Trout versus Harper battle, who's better, who you got and that has pretty conclusively been decided in favor of Trout. Mm-hmm. And there was also I think a perception that Harper was overrated like when there would be those player polls every year, right. I forget who did them, Sports Illustrated maybe, would like poll all the players on who's the most overrated player in baseball and it was always Bryce Harper. I think as recently as March 2019 he was uh, identified as the most overrated player. And I don't know if he's become underrated, but it doesn't feel like he's overrated right now. It feels like suddenly no one's really talking about him all that much. Because like, if you're going to talk about someone who is roughly his age who is amazing, then you're going to talk about Mike Trout or Mookie Betts. And if you're going to talk about the next generation, then you're talking about the Acunas and Sotos and Tatises, etc. And Bryce Harper is just good. And, uh, you know, he's not really demanding our attention anymore, which is odd. It's an unfamiliar situation for Bryce Harper to be in.
0: I wonder if it tells us a little something about just how important the team context for even very good players is. Because, mm. you know, Trout has played on bad Angels teams for most of his career, but he's Mike Trout. And he's had right. because he is the best player in baseball and multiple MVPs and, and this and that. He's he's pretty hard to deny. Plus, we just won't shut up about him. So, you know, there's, there's that part of it. But Harper, you know, his best year was a pretty forgettable year for the Nationals. He left D.C. before they won their World series his first you know Philly hasn't made its way back last year was the strange pandemic year plus they had that disastrous bullpen so even his 2020 which you know again like 60 games but was Quite impressive. Like he had a 151 WRC plus. He was worth almost two wins in just uh, 58 games. So he had a, a, and he walked 20% of the time. Good gravy, Bryce Harper. Wow, look at you. So he, and you know, he hit 13 home runs, but it was 2020 and we were, I think, we're just not. We're still not mentally attuned to who was good last year and who wasn't. And he was on a team that wasn't particularly good. And they were just so painful to watch with that bullpen. So I think that part of it is just that, you know, he was sort of like the prince who was promised in DC. Right. And then it didn't materialize into a World Series win. They obviously had postseason runs, but. They never materialized into sort of an extended stretch. And then, like I said, he left before they went on their 2019 run. And Philly just hasn't been able to take the step forward um on the back half of their rebuild. So, yeah, he's he is interesting to forget because he's also, he does a really good job of like, I don't want to call it cheap. Like, he has a very good PR sense, right? So he, mm-hmm. you know, he wears bandanas that have the fanatic's head and he has, right, yeah. you know. Right, yeah,
1: he's very like. Like pandering to Philly's fans, maybe that is uh, too strong. He seems to know what he knows. Philly's his fans audience appreciate. Yeah. yeah,
0: he has a really good sense of his audience. And when he signed with Philly, he and his family talked a lot about like wanting to be in one place forever and really establish themselves as part of a legacy of a franchise and be connected to the Phillies stories for a long time and. I think that like whatever brashness he had that might have rubbed people the wrong way in the beginning of his career has sort of modulated in a way that makes him both, you know, I think a, a guy who has a really good sense of the franchise he's playing for and is trying to connect with the fan base there, but also has maybe modulated him down enough that it's not sort of breaking through on a team that hasn't had October success yet. So mm-hmm. it is an interesting, it is an interesting thing because I I never quite knew how fair it was to call him overrated, like how much of our expectations of him we really could ascribe to anything that he had cultivated, right? He had done it with his play, and obviously when you have a 9-win a MVP season, like we're all going to sit up and be like, oh my god, Bryce Harper, did you know that he is good? Mm-hmm. But it's always hard to know how much we should really fault players for our own understanding of them being over or underrated, and so yeah, he's just a really, he is a fascinating case, I think yeah. you're, you're I right to point you, out.
1: If you were able to look at, like, uh, I don't know, percentile ranks of, like, traffic to Fangraphs pages or something, mm-hmm. and you Looked at uh, where Bryce Harper ranked from like 2012 to 2015 or a little bit beyond that or wherever and where he's been over the last couple of years. I bet there would be a pretty precipitous drop there, even though he remains a very productive player. And yeah, he's 28 years old, you know, he's not like older over the hill or anything. It's not like his luscious hair has all fallen out or anything. It's just that he's not the new hotness. And he is also not the historically incredible trout or or even bets quite. So he's just like a, a very good <laughs> all around player now it's it's just weird to say yeah Bryce Harper yeah he's he's good like i'm not saying we need to be talking about Bryce Harper more maybe we're talking about Bryce Harper the proper amount for the first time but it's just like I don't know maybe it's the shape of his stats like he's a two fifty two sixty ish hitter which these days is like a high average <laughs> hitter. Yeah. that that would have been average in the past but you know he he'll like give you a pretty good o b p and he's patient and other than that one year before he signed the free agent contract, when it seemed like he was kind of taking it easy on defense a little bit, his defense has been fine. Like he's uh, he's still, you know, on a Hall of Fame trajectory, I right. think we can say. But it would be an unusual case where like in 2012, when he comes up and is good at his age 19 season or 2015, when he's incredible and wins an MVP award, you might have said, oh, yeah, Hall of Fame and he'll be like inner circle Hall of Fame. Whereas now, maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe his career war ends up being in the like Carlos Beltran, Scott Rowland range or something, which is like still, I think, a a deserving Hall of Famer. Certainly couldn't call him a, a disappointment, but it might be just one of those cases where it's like, yeah, you know, maybe other than that one year where now we can look back and say, oh, well, his uh his woba sort of outperformed his expected woba, which was something that people noted after that season that it, it seemed like he had gotten better results on balls and play than perhaps he, quote unquote, deserved or were expected, but he was still really good. And now he's just sort of settled in as like a three to five win player. And That is still very valuable and will produce like one of the the best careers of all time if we're not being too exclusive about it. And yet maybe for the last, I don't know how long he'll last or play at this level, but we could be talking about, you know, 10, 15 years of being good to very good instead of just like the, you know, on everyone's lips all the time that he was for the first several seasons.
0: Well, and who knows, you know, who knows what the next many, many years of his tenure in Philly will bring. You know, it is a funny thing when you have a player page up and it says contract 13 years and then it gives you the final year of the deal and you're like, wow, 2031.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But it's not the longest or the biggest contract. He's been surpassed. He's been surpassed,
0: but you know, he has he has many, many seasons left to go in Philly, and you have to think that at some point things are gonna kinda shake out the way they need to there, and that he'll get his shot at more sort of memorable October moments. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that does for our perception of him because even though, as you said, he's only twenty eight and it's not like he's over the hill or you know, starting to, you know, be considered like a bad or even average player player he will be a diminished version of himself from the last time we saw him play in October assuming that it doesn't happen like this year or the next so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that kind of shifts our perception of him and whether he has a second act that makes the you know sort of intervening couple years of the back end of his time in DC Mm -hmm. and the beginning part of his run in in Philly seem like you know a lull that then crescendos up into something more impressive
1: yeah this could be a snapshot of the perception of Bryce Harper right. at this moment or at least my or our perception and maybe he'll turn it on again and he'll have another MVP year and then it'll be weird that there was a time when we weren't talking right. about Bryce Harper. But yes, I, I think you're right to point out that the team context is important and I wonder if the Nationals winning the World Series in the first season without him made him appear more dispensable. Not that like, right. his presence was holding them back or that they won because he wasn't there or anything but just having him leave and then winning immediately without him, it was like, oh, well, I guess we didn't need him. <laughs> the team wasn't just built around Bryce Harper. And then going to Philly and, and Philly being pretty mediocre in his first couple seasons may have cemented that. So, yeah, just an observation. Just talking about not talking about Bryce Harper.
0: <laughs> when I wrote – so the the offseason um, before he signed – With the Phillies, I wrote the Nationals essay for the BP annual and (laughs) you know I sort of framed it in the you know he's been this baseball demigod his entire career that was the way that we understood him coming into the league and at the very end of that essay and I do not I do not credit myself with being prescient in any way but just that I needed a freaking way to end this thing after it being very very late a thing that I'm still sorry for that you know they had some options internally like we had this sense of Juan Soto as a potential Harper replacement at least in terms of his production at the plate and I think you're right that there was this shift that occurred, not only because they won the World Series, but because the folks who had sort of a Harper-sized hole in their hearts could just look at Juan Soto and go, oh, <laughs> yeah. but we have a Juan Soto now, <laughs> so right. I think that that definitely shifts things around. There's something to be said for being perceived rightly or wrongly as sort of indispensable and irreplaceable, and again, that's not to knock Harper. You know, I think that we all appreciate that we get to sort of delight in the Soto of it all, but it does i think kind of taint your understanding even if it maybe smooths the way out of town for you right i think that fans Mm -hmm. can build up resentment pretty quickly when a big free agent leaves town and then the team is like immediately terrible and then they're like yeah screw that guy and you probably get a few more booze in the ballpark when you come back um, Mm -hmm. than you might otherwise but it is sort of a very abrupt transition i i don't think that that happens quite so dramatically very often where you're like Oh, we just literally have won Soto now and have won <laughs> yeah. a World Series. Like right. normally, there's sort of a you know a, an in-between phase where you're like, we miss that guy, but this is fine. You know, it's it's rare for it to be quite such an abrupt uh, shift in focus.
1: Yes. So a few follow-ups, responses to our discussions on the previous episode, and then maybe a bit of news, and then a few emails since we didn't get to a ton last time. So Sam Normington tweeted at us to say, I love Effectively Wild, but the amount I heard ghost runner this episode hurt me in my pedantic soul. Extra innings runner is very much not a ghost runner. Maybe we should call them a zombie runner because the last player from the lineup the previous inning is raised from the dead. And- Yeah, valid point. Ghost runner, as I typically understand it, even though I was saying it to refer to the extra innings automatic runner, it's like when you don't have enough players to play. And so you have an imaginary runner on the bases. This is not that there is a real runner on the bases. So even though that runner was not a hitter in that inning... I guess we probably should not use the same term to describe it, although I think probably everyone understands what we are talking about. But I kind of like Zombie Runner. I mean, the the runner is alive, but he was sort of brought back from the dead after ending the previous inning. So I, I kind of like that.
0: I like it because, in addition to sort of its accuracy, because you know, pedantic edits appeal to me as an editor. <laughs> we know that in the zombie film canon, there are different kinds of zombies, right? There, there mm-hmm. are the slow, plodding zombies where you're like, you can probably get away from that guy, and then there are the fast zombies, right? They're like the the yes. ones from like Twenty Eight Days Later, where you're like, oh no, I am about to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I I like the potential for us to sort of superimpose. The um, the the various different uh, forms of zombie onto base runners because they too vary in their speeds. So uh, mm-hmm. I I like that very much.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. And then a couple people wrote in to respond to our discussion of players swapping places secretly in a game. And there's no documented case of this happening in baseball or other sports, but there have been some conspiracies. And I was saying that it would be fun even just to speculate about this possibly happening. And there is some speculation that the Canseco twins may have done this at some point. There was a a long Reddit thread coming up with possible times when they might have done it a few years ago. And I think there was a, a switch that they pulled, like in. Ken Seiko's celebrity boxing post-baseball career where I think Jose switched places with Ozzy. And even though they were twins, like you could tell Jose and Ozzy apart, like facially, at least I I think you can. But there was uh, some suggestion that perhaps this could have happened and did happen in boxing. And then I had forgotten, but my colleague at The Ringer, Roger Sherman, broke down a controversy back in 2017 about whether the NBA player Marcus Morris had subbed in for his injured twin brother Marquise Morris and uh Roger did an exhaustive breakdown about this because apparently Marquise had an ankle injury in game 1 of the series and then he looked healthy in game 2 perhaps too healthy suspiciously healthy so Roger examined the evidence there but the idea has been proposed In the past, even though it has not necessarily happened,
0: I guess that it just goes to show that if it has happened, it is a far better con than we were giving credit for because we just haven't we haven't noticed. Although, as we we said in our conversation, and as I think these follow ups show, like the the number of instances in which it could really happen fairly limited, and so it it probably has not. But I like the idea that some someone's sitting out there having perpetuated one of the better baseball cons of all time and they can't tell anyone mm. about it they just right. have to be satisfied
1: mm-hmm. yeah don't take it to your grave if you did this just you know even if it's a deathbed confession right let us all in on the secret years later we also got an email about our discussion of what would happen if home run trots were not required would players actually stop trotting And Mike wrote in to say, did you know that in men's league softball and probably others, running the bases on a home run is not required and is considered bad form?
0: Partly this is
1: due to the time limit most leagues have since it's a waste of everyone's time. Once the ball is over the fence, you're supposed to just turn around and go back to your bench. I've definitely seen people get hot over this. And I just Googled it and I found a thread on the slow pitch subreddit. From a few years ago And it says running the bases on a home run This is only my second season Playing softball and first in this league So I'm learning a lot of rules as I go along But I'm confused on an etiquette issue Should I run the bases on an over the fence home run We've given up only one Over the fence home run so far And the guy did not run the bases So that inclines me to believe that I should not run the bases However the ball player in me says Don't be lazy and run the bases after your home run What would be the proper thing to do and there's a, a whole long thread here of people going back and forth on what is the correct thing to do after hitting the home run. Someone says, 99% of the time you don't run the bases. It's asinine and waste time. Most games are played with a timer, and nobody wants to watch you circle the bases. Then someone else says, trotting is the best part. I've never seen anyone in any of my leagues skip it. I personally never would, etc., etc. But apparently there is a, a hit-and-sit philosophy in at least some softball leagues where you're just expected not to do it because why would you make everyone watch you want to run the bases so that is a point in favor of the suggestion that maybe if they made this not required in mlp it would eventually fall by the wayside
0: but then there would be people who would push back and say but baseball is not a timed game and yeah we got to You know, we got to make them touch them all. And I maintain that the biggest problem with this proposal is that it would just quickly devolve into the dumbest possible conversation (laughs) about what it all signifies and means. But I understand that. I wonder if there's an exception in sort of like rec league uh, softball, if you are drinking a beer while rounding the bases, because Mm. then you've increased the degree of difficulty because you don't want to spill. Right. Yes. Mm. Good
1: point. We also got some questions about automatic runners, but maybe we can get to those once we officially transition into the email segment. So before we do that, we wanted to just follow up on the story about the Mets investigation into (sighs) harassment inside the organization. Much or most of what we are finding out about that situation is coming from reporters and The Athletic and Katie String and Brittany Drolley followed up on their previous reports and documented further instances of harassment and other untoward behavior in the Mets organization Going back a few years, and and this is not just the the Mickey Calloway and the Jared Porter situations, but what seems to be a more pervasive problem, and they extended their look to look at some non-public facing front office employees, some employees who were not in the baseball operations department, but had Reputations for this sort of behavior and many instances and reports of this type of behavior and I guess what is getting much of the attention related to this report is team president Sandy Alderson's response to that reporting, which was not the best.
0: No, we'll read here just so that we can um, give everyone a sense of what went on in case they haven't had a a chance to read the article. This is uh, toward the end. In an interview, Alderson chastised The Athletic for what he felt was an unfair characterization of how the organization handled allegations of wrongdoing. He also felt some stories spotlighted employees who were tasked with gathering information but were not decision makers. "'Let me try to make a point as strongly as I can, okay? Not every instance involving men, women in the workplace is a capital offense, okay? Every time something happens, that doesn't mean somebody has to be fired,' Alderson said." There are a lot of intermediate steps that can be taken, and we've done that in a variety of different cases and have included capital punishment as a consequence in some cases, but not every case rises to the level of execution. And that's what Honestly, I think it's happening with these articles in the Athletic. People are being executed, including women, by the way, for reasons that are unjustifiable. And I think that the, there's a there's a little there's a little bit of trickery going on in this comment that is worth pointing out because Alderson is not wrong that there are certainly instances of behavior that makes someone uncomfortable that gets reported to HR and is addressed by human resources and that person is informed of the behavior that has made someone else uncomfortable and is sort of put on notice that that behavior is unacceptable in the workplace and goes on about their jobs and that's that and i don't think that anyone who is examining either the mets culture specifically or baseball's broader culture is suggesting that every workplace incident necessarily rises to the level of being a fireable offense there's Mm -hmm. there's obviously gradation in these and no one is saying that all of them are equivalent behaviors even if we can recognize that they are inappropriate in their own way but it's hard to look at this this quote coming at the end of a story that that outlines years of this behavior clearly being known, well known enough that one of the individuals mentioned is brought up to a potential hiree as someone who is bad to work for in the interview they have for that job, and then say that the intermediate steps are necessarily being either properly applied, applied at all, or effective in addressing this behavior. And so, you know, I know that there's a sort of ongoing investigation that Steve Cohen has initiated with an out Side law firm to look at the way that the Mets conduct themselves as a workplace and the processes and procedures that they have in place to try to alleviate behavior like this, but it's clear that that hasn't been effective, and that a lot of it is being overseen by the same person, and so i don't know why we would have confidence that things are necessarily going to change when this is the perspective that Alderson has like there are definitely going to be times when someone needs to be let go for creating a hostile work environment and for harassing people. There are going to be times when warning um, or training might be a more appropriate response. And to say that what is being demanded is sort of a zero tolerance policy isn't accurate. And it elevates this to, you know, a scenario where you might have someone who is inappropriately disciplined, but The organization needs to demonstrate that it can appropriately discipline people before we start to worry about them being overzealous. Mm -hmm. So this is disconcerting. I don't know that, you know, anything is necessarily going to come of it when it comes to Alderson's continued involvement with the organization. But if I were Steve Cohen, I'd find this remark to – Make me worry that he's not the right person to oversee a shift in organizational culture, and the degree to which this seems to have been pervasive—from you know, you know, someone on field like Mickey Callaway to the GM's office in Porter, and then down to other people who have seniority in the organization and the ability to make someone's life miserable—is really discouraging this piece points out more people who have left their chosen profession because of the workplace harassment that they've endured. So like that's, that's the, Those are the stakes for the people who are on the receiving end of harassment like this. And I don't mean to downplay the stakes that the harassers have, but then don't harass people.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not even as if heads have really rolled in a right. figurative sense. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not like there have been mass firings over they this. they
0: fired like, one of the guys who did this. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the thing. Yeah, so Alderson is sort of implicated here. You know, he took a leave of absence from the Mets in July of 2018, I think, to get cancer treatment. And then he left the Mets entirely. He was uh, with the A's as an advisor for a year. He returned to the Mets when he was rehired by Steve Cohen last September. So, He was not here throughout all of the recent history, but it sounds as if one of his first acts when he was hired as team president was to bring back one of the main characters of this article, someone who has a a history of just generally being creepy and flirty and gross with women who were working with and for him. And someone, multiple women, according to the article, raised the issue with him and said, You know, why are we rehiring this guy? And he was just like, Oh, I'll talk to him or something. You know, right. it was just like, he deserves a, a second chance or whatever. And, you know, maybe the guy does deserve a second chance. I don't know. But like, white guys get a lot of second chances. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy, it sounds like, had a, a history of this. And so, yeah, I think if you, did something like that and if this is all just coming out for the first time now and if there's a history of just sort of sweeping this stuff under the rug or not really responding to it then for your first reaction to be like oh we're still talking about this like it's it's not like it's ancient history or something that's been litigated and relitigated like this was clearly a, a problem and now that problem is coming to light and Hopefully shining a light on it will help remove the problem, but again, it's, it's sort of like with all of these scandals, it's like, you know, in a different way, what we were talking about with the Astros, where it's like, okay, can we move on already? And it's like, well, you don't necessarily get to decide when people move on if okay. uh, you were the guilty party or if you were involved here and if this didn't come to light for a long time and now it finally has, like there has to be some sort of Reckoning with that, you know, whether it is a a change in personnel or just a change in structure and process, but something clearly has to change and you know mickey calloway still has not been fired officially on the angels coaches page mickey Callaway still listed yep. as pitching coach the result of this investigation better be a tome it better be like a, a lengthy report that justifies like the months and months that have been devoted to this investigation thus far
0: and clearly we're not trying to lay the the angels dragging their feet on callaway at the mets at the mets feet right they don't have okay. any say in the personnel decisions of the angels but i think you're right the the folks who enable institutional cultures like this and do harm like this don't get to dictate the timeline on which other people move on especially when they're not expressing all that much contrition right I I think that you don't get to dictate the process by which someone sort of heals and moves on from say being you know put in a position where they feel the need to leave a chosen profession because their workplace environment is so hostile you know that isn't a thing that you get to like set your watch and be irritated when they don't go as quickly as you'd like them to but you especially don't get to do that when your answers are prickly like this and indicate that you want to move on not because you want to make sure that the place that you oversee is welcoming to people and is a is a workplace that is defined by treating others with respect and having appropriate boundaries and ensuring that they're able to, you know, be judged on the merits of their work rather than it, you know, other considerations that shouldn't have bearing in a professional setting. But you you just are you just want to stop talking about it because it's embarrassing for you and it makes the organization look bad and that doesn't fill me with a ton of confidence that you're the right person to ensure that like the best the best and brightest people, regardless of who they are, get to go to work every day and feel safe and respected and that's that's a bummer because as we've talked about like this team does have a really fun roster, and we want to be able to like feel good about the Mets, but it's very hard to do that when these revelations keep coming out and when the response to them is so wanting so i think that like i don't generally love to like call for people's jobs but i'd have a really hard time like where does alderson go from here right like Mm -hmm. if you're you know if you're a young person if you're a young woman a young non-binary person who's applying for a job with the mets like do you feel confident that it's gonna go great if you're hired Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i wouldn't So, I mean, and we should also say, like, it is very likely that the Mets are not alone in having a culture problem based on, you know, how frequently we're hearing about this stuff and how, you know, different organizations are presenting either a, a tolerance for it or an indifference to it that makes makes you think that they're not particularly keen to like have hard conversations and and really put um procedures in place that would guarantee a good workplace but they've been in the news a lot so we're going to talk about them because <laughs> they're yeah, the ones right. where we can point to a crummy quote from their from one of their executives so
1: yeah that's right yeah they have these very prominent public-facing figures, Callaway in the past and Porter more recently, and that maybe prompted these deeper dives. And if you were to do these deeper dives with probably many other organizations, you could come up with some similar behavior along the way, which is not to excuse the Mets. It's more just to say that this might be more of a pervasive problem, and right now we are hearing about the Mets. But I think one of the more telling parts of the piece was about this guy, Joe DeVito, the team's executive producer for content and marketing, who is one of the people who was implicated here and I guess left the team last month, but he was apparently texting women employees just to be like, well, at least I'm not Mickey, right? Like really- (sighs) That's kind of the the cringiest part of this thing yeah. that it was such common knowledge that Callaway was a creep within the organization that someone else who was also creepy, but maybe not <laughs> creepy in exactly the same ways was like comparing himself favorably to him. And this isn't even like a player or a coach or someone in baseball operations. This is someone in an entirely different department. So if it was such common knowledge that he was a creep, then you have to think that everyone knew about it and didn't do anything.
0: Yeah, it just underscores how pervasive this all was. And yeah, when the bar you're clearing is that you're not dick pick Mick, don't (laughs) be, that's not a pat yourself on the back kind of moment. No, that's that's a moment for continued reflection.
1: <laughs> yes. All right. So let's transition to a few emails here. So a couple automatic runner follow ups and this email uses ghost runner throughout, but I'm just going to edit it on the fly here in the interest of Sam and his pedantic but well-taken critique. So Daniel says, listening to the discussion of the automatic runner or zombie runner, if we're calling the runner that in episode 1681, I had the thought that if the primary goal of the zombie runner is to prevent games from taking too long, then why not tie it to time played rather than what inning it is? So perhaps the rule Mm -hmm. should require a zombie runner starting in the first extra inning, which begins more than three and a half hours after first pitch, not counting the time the game was suspended or delayed. This would have the benefit of introducing the zombie runner much later in a pitcher's duel than in a slugfest. Personally, I very much dislike the zombie runner rule and think that games should just be allowed to end in ties after a certain point. But this time-based rule is slightly more palatable to me than the rule as implemented. And someone else wrote in to say that that was sort of a hidden benefit of the rule that you proposed when we spoke which was that it would be tied to scoring in some way and so if you had a pitcher's duel then you would want to maintain the scarcity of runs whereas if you had a slugfest then well what the heck just the floodgates are already open we might as well do this and one benefit of that is that Often, a high-scoring game will be longer, and so you would need the zombie runner rule more. Whereas a pitcher's duel may have moved swiftly, and it might be less imperative that you implement this rule at least right away. So, that's what Daniel is saying, sort of. Except he's saying why not make that explicit and tie it to the time of game.
0: I think that that's a. I think that that's a good idea. It it seems like the only way that we might get some wiggle on this question from from MLB because as we discussed like we we're just very skeptical that they're going to do anything that might give room for for longer games again but this is this seems like a another happy potential medium right I know that it doesn't satisfy the folks who look at this and just say that baseball should be the same regardless of the game state right that the rules should not shift depending on time because that violates our sense of what the game has been before and if that's your position on this I think that's perfectly defensible and this clearly does not allude. Alleviate That problem because it it does have you managing to a clock, even if it's not quite as uh, omnipresent as as you might might otherwise end up with. So I, I, I think that this there's some merit here because it gives us. More often than not, it will give us breathing room to appreciate the really good pitching matchups that we talked about last time. But, you know, when when a game is just ludicrously long and therefore likely to be not a blowout. See, we need a new word for that. High scoring is what I mean to say. Mm-hmm. Then I think, uh, you know, you can kind of help people get home so they can go to bed.
1: Yeah. Right. And we also got an email from Justin who said, I was listening with interest to your suggestions about how and when to modify the terrible runner on second rule, which to be clear, I do hate. I had an idea to make it more exciting. 10th inning, normal. 11th inning, runner on first. 12th inning, runner on second. 13th inning, runner on third. 14th inning, runners on 1st and 2nd, 15th inning, runners on 1st and 3rd, 16th inning, runners on 2nd and 3rd, 17th inning, bases loaded. I don't have any idea what to do after that, dial it back down in reverse, start over at normal, doesn't matter really, I don't see it getting that far. The thinking is that every time the teams remain tied, it would raise the stakes. This would be incredibly stressful and exciting for fans, as not only would the likelihood of scoring increase with each inning, but in all likelihood, the relief pitchers would probably start getting worse. If a game should continue on for a few more extra innings, it would be must-see television for sure.
0: I mean, this is madness, but I kind of <laughs> like it. <laughs> I don't think you'd have to start over. You just leave them loaded and see how long it goes. I mean, gosh, mm-hmm. can you imagine if you're the offense that can't drive in a single run? Against... Yeah, you'd
1: never get there, but yes.
0: I get, yeah, we would never, ever, ever get there. <laughs> I mean, there's there's very, little, there's very little risk that it would ever reach that point, but it would be sure fun if it did.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like this. Like, if we're going to do it, Which, again, not in favor of it, but I do like the escalating intensity as opposed to just the abrupt change from regular baseball to totally different baseball and the same brand of totally different baseball, no matter what extra inning it is. So I like it starting a little bit later, and I do kind of like that it gets more and more anxiety-inducing as the game goes on in One way it it makes it seem even more like Calvin Ball or Blurns Ball or whatever if we're just (laughs) changing to different rules every extra inning. But if we're tossing out the regular rules as it is, then I guess we might as well go whole hog and have fun with it. So again, strongly in favor of doing nothing and just leaving it the way it was would even be more in favor of ties than doing any of this, I think. But I kind of like this. This sounds like it would be sort of fun.
0: And I like that fun is a priority, but that it maintains tension, and as you said, it builds tension and sort of has things escalate. And you still have the the potential for normal play, right? But then if you've you know if you've squandered normal play, then they say, okay, well now we're going to really put the screws to you and see what you can do with it. So I I think that this is good. But again, that the I don't think the league would ever go for it because <laughs> no. again, you they. They just want this stuff done so fast. It's, it's really interesting that that is such a priority, but that there is a sort of philosophical bright line around ties. Yeah. It is a curious bit of insight into how the league understands the game and like what is the most essential to it Mm -hmm. in a way that like I wonder how constant that will stay you know now that there are uh, zombie runners will there Mm -hmm. forever be zombie runners because part of it too is that the circumstances around the pandemic are hopefully going to be different in the 2022 season and so the justification for this as somehow related to sort of health and safety stuff that excuse is going to fall by the wayside one hopes after this year and then Mm -hmm. there will have to be a more sort of explicit conversation about time spent on the field as bad even when there isn't a a potential health concern and so it will be uh, i will be very curious to see how they phrase that if they try to bring it back again you know it's always interesting when the game and its practitioners sort of reveal something about how it understands itself and this is one of those Mm -hmm. moments so
1: yeah All right. John says, I've heard some broadcasters say that the replay review folks shouldn't know what the call is when they're reviewing a play. The idea is that because the replay officials are also umpires, they're reluctant to overturn their colleagues' calls. Do you think this happens Would the replay officials not knowing the call on the field make for a better system?
0: Interesting. I wonder if this maybe misunderstands the concept of care that one might have for one's colleagues because there's like the showing up the the umpires on the field aspect of it but there's also the part of it that is the home team is potentially going to be really pissed at you depending on what you call and Mm so my my instinct would be that if what the replay umpire is trying to do is sort of maintain the well-being of the umpire on the field that they would sacrifice the momentary embarrassment of having your call overturned for the more vocal embarrassment and sort of consternation of having the t- the home crowd yell at you a lot. <laughs> and so I wonder what the the sort of preferred way of expressing sort of solidarity or camaraderie with your with your Pals would be assuming that we think that they all like one another, which um, you know that might be a pretty big assumption on our part. But I think that it's a good thing to have an understanding of, provided that what we're trying to do is have the most accurate call on the field be the one that ends up um, sort of prevailing, and that might require a change in in sort of what the replay standard is, in addition to having what was called on the field sort of communicated to the replay ump's because if what we're trying to say is you need clear and sort of convincing evidence that the call on the field is wrong, you know, you have to change that standard in addition to telling the the replay ump what they what they called on the field. Mm-hmm. What do you what matters the most to you when it comes to replay?
1: accuracy <laughs> yeah and so the yeah. I
0: think the standard is what really needs to change and once the standard changes there's no obligation to inform them of what the call in the field was because the standard is is the call right or wrong not mm-hmm. is there enough present here to indicate that an error was made unless we have to you know overturn what the call in the field was. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, if they know what the call is, whether or not they're inclined to make their colleagues look good or or they think that they'd be showing them up, just knowing what the call was will influence their thinking. Right. I mean, it just kind of. Anchors, you're, you're thinking like, oh, this other qualified person who does the same job I did saw it this way. So it's almost like, you know, the, the burden of evidence has to be higher for you to overturn it. That's the way the system works. The call stands if you can't conclusively determine that it was wrong. Right. So I think you could say that if you want to just the most unbiased look at it, then yeah, just show them the play, have them call it the way that the first person called it, except with more time and better angles and information. I guess you could say that if you think there's any benefit to being on the scene, like, are you losing any information from not being there? I, I guess the whole point of the system really is that you get a better look at it, right. or at least a different look if you go to the replay booth and you get to examine it from all sorts of angles. So like, unless there's some extenuating circumstance that you don't know unless you're standing there physically in the ballpark, and I just I don't know that there would be really in many cases. So I don't know that you actually would be losing anything. I would say that it may be difficult to cut out the call at right. times. I mean, yeah. like sometimes the call is just signaled immediately and right. sometimes the umpire is in the frame. So just as a, a matter of mechanics, it, it may be tough to like show them the play from every angle without also showing them what the call was. So practically speaking, I'm not sure that it's actually always feasible, but yeah, maybe like, I don't know if... uh if there's some benefit to just having fewer calls overturned so that you feel like as you're watching the game like you have to take the plays with less of a grain of salt like maybe it's better to have plays overturned more rarely just so it it feels like what you're watching in real time is legitimate and it it lends credence to the idea that umpires are good at their jobs. So, I don't know if it benefits baseball for there to be fewer calls overturned and and more, you know, upheld if if not confirmed. So, there are a lot of considerations here, but I think there is something to the idea of if you could do it, just having them make an unbiased call without knowing what the ruling was.
0: Yeah, I think that it would it would certainly Remove the potential for them taking some understanding of sort of colleague care into account one way or the other. But as you said, it might be it might be kind of difficult to manage um, given the camera (laughs) angles that we give them, which is a lot of camera angles. There's very many.
1: Yeah. All right. Sean says, I have yet another question to add to your stockpile of if baseball was different questions. What if the catcher could wear a mitt the size of the entire strike zone? (laughs) How would framing be different Would all of the good framers get worse And the bad framers get better Making everyone average Would bases be stolen at will because catchers Can't get the ball out of their glove Would every plate appearance just end in catchers Interference (laughs) I really want to watch A whole game with this
0: Almost certainly they would just all end with catchers interference Right (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it would. I be I mean, hard. like that, that's a
0: big. That would be a big glove, and you wouldn't have good. Um, you know, your your little thingies only reach so far up into the glove, and yeah. so you wouldn't have good articulation on the outer edge of it, and it would just be flapping around, and right. and so you'd you'd probably end up hitting the bat a lot, and it would. I think that it would result in just way worse calls, not because calls are being more expertly framed but because calls that would otherwise be called correctly would just the the umpire wouldn't know what to do with it because i think it would be hard for them to visualize i I mean like they're not comically large but they would be very large (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think it would be difficult for them to visualize exactly where in the zone the ball was caught because of the the flapping without Mm. your little fingies to make it you know close around it
1: probably drop a lot of pitches right because it it would be hard to squeeze the (laughs) strike zone sized glove hard enough to actually keep the ball in the pocket like unless the construction were changed in some way could you even close the thing like would your Fingers have the leverage required to close the glove tightly? And if not, if baseballs were just leaking out of this thing, then would that lead to fewer strike calls? Because umpires think that uh, if the catcher drops the ball, that it wasn't in the right spot or something. But that's in a world with, (laughs) you know, glove sized gloves as opposed to strike zone sized gloves. And in this case, I wonder if you would get more or less accurate pitch calls. Like, obviously with the state of affairs that we see today, umpires do, if even inadvertently use the catcher's actions and the position of the glove and the movement of the glove, they do factor that into their strike calls and perhaps they shouldn't, but in practice they do. And in this case, there would not be that source of bias really because uh, I mean I guess you might have to move the glove a tiny bit or shift your body a little bit but mostly you would just sit there and hold the giant glove up and the ball would hit it no matter what like maybe you'd still have to move it a little to get it to hit the right part of the glove but that would be less of a source of information for umpires about where the pitch actually was and so I don't know, maybe they would have to focus harder on the location of the pitch as it crossed home plate. Maybe it would actually lead to more accurate pitch calls. But yeah, framing metrics would just be torpedoed. I guess there might be something to it, but I think there'd be a lot less differentiation there. And yes, More steals. So if we want to bring back base stealing, then this would be one way to do it, I guess. Although you would probably also block everything. How could anything get by you? Yeah. So there'd be fewer balls going to the backstop. So Yeah, but just
0: imagine what the transfer would be like. Yeah, yeah. if you're trying to throw it a second, that would be a freaking nightmare. (laughs) You'd be reaching in there. It'd be like your Mary Poppins reaching into your carpet bag to be like, and here's the ball and also a floor lamp.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, probably not a positive change, but I agree. I would want to watch a game with this. Maybe not multiple games, but I'd be curious what it would look like.
0: They need to do this, the um, ever-expanding clown shoes, and everyone else (laughs) with smaller gloves in the same game. Yeah. This might just be a Savannah Bananas promotion is what I'm (laughs) describing.
1: Yes. All right. Jordan, Patreon supporter, says, My friend Sid made a joke about DH standing for designated hugger, (laughs) which in turn made me think that if I were a baseball player, I would make a prop bet where if somebody lost, they'd have to try and hug the first baseman with their consent, of course, if they got a base hit. Now, aside from this maybe violating the rule against fraternizing at first, which everyone does anyway, it made me wonder which first baseman would be the most willing to hug a player who got a base hit. I looked at your positional rankings to come up with some obvious candidates. Max Muncy, Jose Abreu, Anthony Rizzo, g Mann Choi, Freddie Freeman, decidedly not Luke Voigt. When I realized that there seemed to be a rough correlation between huggability and production at first base, is this a coincidence? Narrator, it was. Or do you think there is some legitimate correlation between affability more broadly? Because what is huggability, if not simply a more overtly grandpa level of affability, and being stationed at and then being productive at first base? The nice guys tend to get funneled toward first base in the minors? Does it seem like there's a first base personality? Maybe it was Scott Haddeberg's step into my office personality that made him a good fit for first base rather than being a picking machine.
0: I doubt that it is like a a trait that is selected on, (laughs) but I do think that we and we're all about to experience what a year of not having practice that this is going to do to our ability to like go out in public and not, you know, reach out your hand to shake someone's hand and accidentally lick them on the side of the face or something. But (laughs) I think that we get better at social interactions through practice, and arguably first basemen have the most practice of anyone on the field. And so I think that the 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 sort of traits in the profile and the tools that are being selected on there probably don't have much to do with the social acumen, but I would imagine that it it sort of progresses in lockstep with the amount of time you spend there because you just get used to to chatting with a guy because it's awkward to stand there and be completely stoic and still i mean there definitely are times when that is what the the game kind of calls for and you know there are tense moments and there are teams that don't like each other and have rivalries and i'm sure that they're a little less chatty when they get to first but Mm -hmm. i would imagine that you know it's like anything else you got to practice
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, first basemen tend to be chattier because uh, there's a lot of traffic at first base and they're holding runners on. And so there are many articles that uh, I could link to a few on the show page about what exactly do they talk about during these conversations. But I don't know if that means that the position selects for affability or whether it just encourages it because it's awkward to stand there and not say anything to anyone, especially if people are talking to you. So maybe it's not that they're actually more affable than anyone else, but because we see them chatting so much, we conclude that they're extra affable because we always see them chatting up base runners. And so we think, oh, that must be a a nice guy. He's always making conversation, but you have to make conversation really if you're at that position, just it's the social niceties. So I think that Jordan's rankings or his picks are, are pretty good and i i do wonder like i would imagine that over the course of one's career maybe you become more talkative or more affable i don't know you you pick up on how these conversations tend to go and you want to make people comfortable at your little home on the field or I don't know maybe is there a competitive advantage to not being friendly because uh people are uncomfortable around you or is there a competitive advantage to being so friendly that the runners are distracted because you are just chatting them up
0: I would imagine that the advantage comes in a in a precise Understanding as sort of what the social moment calls for, right? So it is not that one is always affable or that one is always taciturn, but rather that one assesses the situation and engages in the social sort of moment or the so- social interaction that the moment calls for. So sometimes you're Jesus Aguilar and you're playing. Atlanta and Ozzy Albies is at first and you're like I'm gonna pull his hair because he took his helmet off and I'm gonna pull his hair and it's gonna be playful and we're all gonna look at it and we're gonna go oh Zeus, you're such a you're such a scamp and Albies is gonna be like ah oh, that guy's nice and then there are gonna be times when it's like a very tense moment in a playoff situation and you really have to have your wits about you and you're probably not gonna be super chatty then because you you know you need to do your job so part of it is about being able to execute on your, your own set Of tasks, and part of it is that you know you want things to be tense, and you want to be sharp, and you maybe know that while distracting the other guy by pulling his hair would um, distract him, and that would be to your benefit. You also know that like it kind of isn't what the social moment calls for, and that people are going to be like, well, that's rude. Like you gotta you know keep your let him keep his wits about him. You're keeping your wits about you. So really, I think that people just have to have some amount of like social IQ and. Adapt to the moment I'm like maybe a guy's in a bad mood and you can kind of tell you're like oh he's having a bad day like maybe his you know he had a fight with his wife or mm-hmm. he has to file his taxes and he forgot and so he's like I gotta do that when I get home they're not doing their own but you know what I mean like <laughs> he's like oh I, did I did I take the recycling to the curb I don't remember is the pilot light on who's to say and so he's preoccupied and you're like I'm just gonna let leave him be um mm-hmm. and then next time when he steps into my office and he's in a better mood than a will
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this. uh, I was just reading a a story in the great newsletter that I seem to cite every week. Craig writes pages from baseball's past, and he wrote for Jackie Robinson Day about... Jackie Robinson early in his career being a first baseman, which is something that a lot of people forget or never knew about that Jackie was a first baseman in his rookie season. And at the beginning of his second season in 48, he was still playing some first and it could very easily have become permanent. Because uh, Leo DeRocher, the manager of the Dodgers at the time, liked this young infielder named Eddie Mixis, and it seemed like he was maybe going to be ticketed for starting at second base. And if that had happened, then Robinson might very well have been a, a career first baseman in the National League. And that didn't happen. Because uh, Eddie Mixis did not pan out and he wasn't hitting and then Jackie was shifted to second and then Gil Hodges, who was like the number three catcher for the Dodgers at the time, he was shifted to first base and the rest is history. So that was interesting to me, not just because uh, it's a cool alternate history to contemplate, but also I wonder what that would have been like socially For Jackie Robinson, I mean, I guess, you know, in his first year, that's something that I don't think about much. But as he was the source of this controversy and as he was getting harassed and taunted and hounded sometimes by opposing players, he was also playing first base. And so there were a lot of opportunities for small talk. And I don't know whether that made the integration more difficult or less difficult, That like... People who might have been inclined not to support his presence there, like if they got more of an opportunity to talk to him and said, oh, I I like this guy, and it humanized him for them, or whether there were any awkward situations, like you could imagine that if there was some other intolerant player on the opposing team... He would have more opportunities to interact with Robinson, and who knows what that could have led to, some sort of you know, interaction that blew up or, or became visible to everyone else. So I would be curious. I, I would have liked to have heard Jackie Robinson's first base small talk during that historic 1947 season, but that is an element of uh, his breaking the color barrier that I had not really considered before this.
0: Yeah, it, you know, having a, a pleasant or even just neutral social interaction is uh, it requires two parties. And so, yeah, yeah I, I I hesitate to be optimistic about it just knowing what we know. But, yeah, it would be interesting to hear what that experience was like for him and hopefully how it shifted or improved if it started out badly. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I can't imagine that it wasn't – you know, it was probably something that he at the very least approached with trepidation because – you know, we we know what was said about him and to him, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days of his career, especially. So uh, <laughs> I I hesitate to say it was good, um, yeah. but I hope that I'm wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. I've got two more here. This is Ted, Patreon supporter. He says, I'm sure you saw that the Nintendo theme park recently opened in Japan, the Nintendo World, Super Nintendo World. This got me thinking, what attractions or rides would a baseball theme park have? The Hall of Fame is a museum and certainly doesn't have anything that could be considered a theme park ride, and the previous attempt at creating a baseball theme park seems to have gone poorly. I will return to that in a second. Still, I do think it would be fun to face a Garrett Cole fastball, try to rob a Mike Trout home run, or maybe even journey to the home plate of the living baseballs from the deeply disturbing episode 1587. Do you think you could fill a whole theme park with baseball-related attractions? And if so, what ride would you be most excited about? So the previous baseball theme park that he cites here is uh, something called Boardwalk and Baseball, which was a theme park built near Haines City, Florida, and it opened in April 1987, and it closed in January 1990. So it did not last long. It was not a success, but... Here, according to Wikipedia, are the attractions at Boardwalk and Baseball. Baseball City Stadium, plus five other ballparks, hosts two daily ball games. Baseball City Royals, a Kansas City Royals farm team, was the professional home team. Additional games are by amateurs, including high school and college teams. Starting in 1988, the Kansas City Royals held their spring training and exhibition games moving here from Fort Myers. So part of it was just actual baseball games going on. Then they had batting cages. They had bullpen test your pitching skills, whatever that means. They (laughs) had the baseball card studio, have your own (laughs) baseball card printed with pictures taken in any major league jersey. They had a fielding test. Again, we'd have to look into exactly what that consisted of. The hurricane, a main attraction at the park. This was a wooden coaster and was carried over from Circus World. In 1990, the coaster was sold and moved to Magic Springs in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It was operational there in 1992. The Taste of Cooperstown exhibit, which was a display on loan items from the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and a theater which showed the film Great Moments in Baseball.
0: Well, in the modern version of this, you could have you're not going to recreate baseball necessarily, like you might, but that might be kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. As like a, a theme park, but you could you could pick up on aspects of the game and then use them as themes for other rides. Like you could have a a really really fast roller coaster that's like a uh, stack ass themed, it could be <laughs> like about launch angle or something. Um you could have like a Launch angle roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm describing. You could have, you know, like at Disneyland, they have Soarin' Over California, which is like a mm, hang yeah. glider, right? So you could be in a baseball that's going through the air. <laughs> and uh-huh. it could it could take you on a tour of like all the different parks, right? Like, Because um, you're not really on a hang glider in Soarin' Over California, Ben. So it doesn't have to be realistic. Like you mm-hmm. could just be in a... And a baseball that's flying through the air. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and you could be like, "Oh, I've been launched." I don't know. <laughs> it's a hard thing to. You'd have to maybe dig into some of the baseball movies and and mm. develop theme rides around them. Do they ever? Do anything good there? <laughs> I think it'd be kind of hard, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I think that you would just be like doing a bunch of roller coasters and then pretending that it's like the home run launch or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. About I don't home runs.
1: You need a baseball theme park. No. It's like we have baseball theme parks. They're. Ballparks right <laughs> basically right, like you need a a Nintendo theme park because it's like, oh, it's like these virtual digital worlds, but it's in real life, so it's kind of cool to walk around the mushroom kingdom and it's actually a physical thing, like I don't know, frankly, the Nintendo theme park doesn't look that great to me, it looks kind of cramped, but I understand the appeal of like you know the wizarding world of Harry Potter or like Galaxy's Edge or whatever with Star Wars, where it's like, oh. These are these imaginary worlds that we like picturing ourselves in. And here is an actual representation of it. We get to be in and you can go to a baseball game at many levels and see the baseball. So I, I don't know that you need a baseball theme park really. And you can certainly play baseball yourself locally, even, you know, if it is just in your bear league softball or whatever. So Again, I don't know that we need it, but if you were going to do it, yeah, I I don't think that just like having exhibits on loan from Cooperstown is going to get you very far because then why not just go to Cooperstown, I guess, unless it's farther away for you. And things like batting cages and, you know, testing your pitch speed and all of that, like there are so many places you can do it. And I, I guess it's still fun to do that when they have like the pitch speed machines at the state fair or something. So So yeah, you could have that. But I feel like ultimately VR is probably going to be the best baseball theme park that you could come up with because they already have systems that are in use by many major league teams where it just simulates facing a major league player. And that's the part I think that would be most compelling for us is to stand in there and actually feel what, what it would be like. So whether it's VR where you can't Get hurt by the fake fastball, or if you were to simulate that, like you know, if you could do like a, a Westworld, except it's MLB, and you could just be in an actual game. Like the the technology is beyond us right now, I think. But if you could do that, whether in VR or with uh, animatronic baseball players or something, where you could feel like you are actually stepping on the field in a major league baseball game, and it were convincing, that would be fun. So. Until we reach that point, I don't think that I would be that compelled to visit a baseball theme park.
0: They could have a bungee jumping ride, and they could call it the seventh inning stretch.
1: (laughs) Yeah, except what do you do in seven inning doubleheaders?
0: Do they even stretch?
1: They don't stretch in like the fifth inning or something, do they?
0: I think they do. Do they? Probably. they do. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I I don't know. I know that when I've been to extra inning games that have gone 14, and they do a second seventh inning stretch. Right in the 14th so you know yeah, it but that's seems... the same
1: amount of time where you're not stretched and you need to stretch whereas do you really need to stretch in the fifth inning you haven't been sitting as long so
0: i think that it probably isn't relevant to the question of the bungee jumping <laughs> ride <Ben. laughs> probably
1: not no i think
0: it's fine for it to just be a bungee ju- ride is a misnomer but you know like when you go to the fair mm-hmm. sometimes they do like the, the like mini bungee jump deal and yeah and it stretches so it's the seventh inning stretch yeah.
1: So if you just had a regular theme park, except it's like lightly baseball themed. Right. It's called baseball names and there's baseball art or whatever, then, then sure, I guess. But in that case, it's just another theme park, essentially. And it's just a baseball veneer.
0: You would call it Field of Dreams and it would be very small.
1: Yeah. So there are some things you could do, but I think... The, the premise is somewhat flawed in that you can see real baseball and you can participate in baseball already without the theme park. So unless I feel like I'm really in the game and I've had the legitimate major league experience, then I'm not going to travel across the country to the baseball theme park, I don't think. All right. Last one, Jesse, Patreon supporter. What do you think is the best position for remembering some guys? A Reddit oh. user named p m o e h r i n does this series during the off season where we guess the MLB season based on players and their teams. It's pretty great. Anyway, I saw this post for backup catchers, and the remember some guys vibe was incredibly strong. I mean, Taylor Teagarden, come on. If you ask me, catcher is the most remember some guys position in baseball. It's arguably the hardest position, so the players tend to stick around forever. Even casual fans hear about these guys because odds are your team signed many of them on flyer slash spring training invite deals, or they filled in for a game or two at some point. And if you want to get more specific, backup catcher might be the peak remember some guy position within a position.
0: Backup catcher is really high on the list. I mean, relievers are their own thing, so maybe we set them aside for now. I would say backup catcher is a really good one. I would say like the the sort of up the middle utility guy is probably Mm. a really good spot because like everybody needs a backup middle infielder, so you probably uh, you probably have one of you know one of those on your roster at least. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a spot, and then like fourth outfielder, I think is probably the home of remembering some guys because you want a spot where they're. There's a low enough bar to clear but enough roster um, necessity that they're going to have to, you know, sort of, run dudes through over the the course of the years like you know I turn on the TV now and I'm like well I think Guillermo Peretti is on the Braves and I don't remember that happening but he's yeah. a guy not like a, a good one but like I mean like as a person I don't know again this is like you <laughs> just need better words but I, I think like the sort of bench backup middle infield guy you know the, the guy where you're like you're not really a good shortstop and you're not really a good second baseman like you're kind of stretched at both of those spots but you know you're good enough and we need to make sure that if somebody goes down in the course of the game we can field the the spot so that would Mm -hmm. be my i think that would be my call
1: if pitchers count then right just from the fact that there are more pitchers than there are players at any other one position then they're going to yield more guys to remember and also pitchers like Even if they're not prolific pitchers, when they are on the field, they're the stars. So maybe it's more likely that you do remember them. And they also have uh, distinctive windups and mechanics and mannerisms. And so maybe that helps with the remembering, but can't quibble with your picks or or with catcher if we're talking about position players. And I am kind of curious what will happen to the practice of remembering some guys down the road. When we're dealing with the situation now where there are so many guys, there are so many players now from season to season, just not just because there are 30 teams, that's been the case for a while, but because there are just so many pitchers used and players shuffled in the back of benches and bullpens and Frankly, not only will I not remember some of these guys, but I'm not aware of them now. <laughs> so will we reach a point where like, we won't have the lingua franca? We won't be able to remember the same guys because there are just so many guys and like, baseball is regional, local fandom now. And so if you're watching your team... You're not going to remember the eighth reliever on this other team's bullpen. Like, will we still be able to remember guys? I I guess the threshold, like, it'll just be a a smaller percentage of the overall player pool that will actually be memorable. But you'll have to be careful because you can't assume that those guys will be remembered. There are just too many guys to hold in your head.
0: That's so grim. (laughs) <laughs> that's such a grim read i don't know that you're wrong but i hope you are yeah, yeah i uh, but there are still you know there are guys that are gonna stick around forever like i was watching the d game earlier this week when zach Allen came back for his first start and i thought mm-hmm. to myself i was like a Cabrera is gonna play forever i mean he's already yeah. been playing forever he's gonna play forever like he's not you know he's not good in the field anymore but the he can hit You know, Mm -hmm. and then that guy's going to be around forever and we're going to remember that guy. I mean, he's like probably on the high end of remember some guys because he's had a a truly productive career. But it's like, you know, some of these dudes, they are just going to stick and there will be some guys who I think are guys who we Mm -hmm. remember and then we will remember them.
1: (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, I will leave you with a reading recommendation, which is uh, Rob Arthur wrote about the baseball. And this is relevant to what we talked about yesterday. Basically, just kind of backed up what we found in spring training and what we discussed on our previous episode. But he has some data in there and some facts in there. So I will link to that on the show page. And basically, again, exit velocity is up, drag is also up. And those things cancel each other out to a certain extent. And the net effect seems to be that the ball is roughly as lively as it used to be. And it seems to have been shrunk slightly, the ball. That was the goal, at least, or that was what MLB said it was doing. And that could be responsible, at least in part. For the increased air resistance or or slowdown due to air resistance as well as the increased exit velocity, but it doesn't seem that there was a corresponding deadening that would decrease the speed off the bat. Balls are coming faster off the bat than before. So we will track that as the weather warms up. And also, if I can just plug a, a piece of mine, we haven't talked about it and probably don't need to talk about it at length, but I wrote something about Billy Bean and Brian Cashman this week yeah. that uh, I will link to as well if you're interested in those guys. This is a long one, even by my standards. So <laughs> uh, it's it's not a quick read, but hopefully it's an engaging read and I just wanted to dig into these guys because I don't know if people notice this, but they are in their 24th seasons running their respective baseball operations departments. And as far as I can tell, that ties the all-time record for the longest uninterrupted tenure running a team's baseball operations department in any kind of equivalent position, You know, not an owner who's doing it or an owner manager, but a GM or what we would call a GM these days. Ed Barrow, the early Yankees GM, one of Cashman's predecessors who's in the Hall of Fame, he also made it 24 seasons. And I think that's it. I think they are now tying Barrow. And if they make it one more year to 2022, and they are both under contract for next season, that would be their 25th seasons and I believe record-breaking seasons for the longest stint with one team. And it's pretty incredible. And I kind of got into how they have done that and what they have in common and how they're different, but I really like juxtaposing these two guys because they're opposites in so many ways, like physically, you know, in terms of the path they took to their positions and obviously payroll, like, you know, one of the lowest spending teams, one of the highest spending teams, and yet both very successful in different markets, different circumstances, and they have both managed to outlast everyone during a period of rapid upheaval. And they're sort of the the last guy standing from that GM class. And they also happen to be really close friends, which was something that I was not really aware of before I was uh, sort of tipped to this story and, and worked on it. They're just good friends because they go way back and right. they kind of bonded early on. And so the story sort of built around the 1997 Kenny Rogers trade between the A's and the Yankees, which was Bean's first official trade. And Cashman was still the assistant GM at that time, but he was handling that deal. So it was sort of his first trade too. And that brought them together. And they've been kind of close ever since. And they've gone from being the young guns to the old guard. And I think it's a really interesting juxtaposition of uh, characters and stories. So hopefully people will enjoy that.
0: Yeah, it's a good, it, it, is, it is lengthy, but it is worth <laughs> it. And what a nice thing to take into the weekend with you if you didn't have a chance to look at it uh, already this week. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so we will leave you with that. That will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Mike Snyder, Michael Melia, Harry Stanwick, Ian Jessup, and Matt Laquidara. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups group slash effectivelywild can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and spotify and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and meg coming via email at podcast or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week